Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, what do you fear the most? What do I fear the most? Fear. Fear? Yeah. Ah. Uh, right? That's a pretty good one. Yeah, that's the, the fear itself, right? Might as well fear it. Sure, yeah. it's incapacitating. Yeah. So not like wild dogs or anything. Straight no, up fear. No, no. No griffins. You? Um... Probably, I probably fear like all the mundane stuff now that we'll get into in a bit. <laughs> Used to, it was alien abductions though. When I was, uh, when I was uh, like a junior high kid, I was terrified of alien abductions. And then I went through like a one week phase or maybe it was a month in high school where I was terrified of car wrecks. Like I was just convinced that if my family got in a car, mm-hmm. we'd go out, you know, we we're like driving to look at Christmas lights and I, and I was like, this is a needless risk. We are, we're clearly all going <laughs> to perish. Is and this, then it passed. Is no, this no. because you had seen some, some sort of public service announcement on I driving? Bet so. yeah. I bet so. I imagine that both of these fears were directly related to, um, to stuff that I was absorbing, be it unsolved mysteries in the mm-hmm. case of the alien abductions or, yes, yeah, some special about highway safety in the case of the, the, the vehicle fear. And, you know, now that I think about it, when I was around eight years old, I saw a documentary on an atom bomb. And I remember having nightmares about being with my family on a cliff and watching the sun melt oh. and everything around me just perish. Um, so... Yeah, I think if you guys are listening along, you're going to start to see this link here between media consumption and how it informs our fears. Indeed. Uh, we're talking about uh, something called mean world syndrome, uh, which is uh, which is a fascinating theory that we're going to unwrap for you here. And it it really got it, it's really it, it really gets its tentacles into just about everything in our daily life. It does. And before we explore that a bit more, we want to thank listener Joseph, who wrote us about our episode, The Dark, and sent us a link to a survey about what Americans fear most, which kicked off this whole exploration of the mean world syndrome, which in which there is also a documentary. It's a 2010 documentary. And we thought we would just pull a couple of quotes from it. Yeah, this comes from George Gerbner, professor of communications and founder of Cultivation Theory, um, died in 2005. He says, most of us live rather insulated lives and we don't meet too many people of other groups, of other races, other ethnic backgrounds than our own. Most of what we know about other races, other ethnic groups, we know from television. And from television, we get some very peculiar types of information. Now, they interview a bunch of other people, including Michael Morgan and Marshall McLuhan, who said on the difficulty of measuring the effect of media on viewers' perceptions, quote, it's like the fish in the water. We don't know who discovered water, but we know it wasn't the fish. A pervasive medium, a pervasive environment is always beyond perception, end quote. So... That, I think, is the underlying conundrum here. Mm-hmm. We know that we're consuming media. Um, we know that we're consuming a lot more than we used to and in various uh, different ways. But we're not entirely sure of the effects. But we do have Gerbner's research to give us a clue of how this is actually informing our worldview. Yeah, and worldview here is key because, as we've hit on many times in this uh, podcast, uh, reality is is uh, is different for everyone. There's a, certainly there's a subjective reality and an objective reality, but everyone's worldview is a little different. Everyone's everyone's model of reality in which we house ourselves 
is a little different? And what, what do we build it out of? To what degree does media play into our construction of this particular world? Does objectivity really exist when you're trying to filter information through your own experiences mm-hmm. and ideas? And that's a, a bit of what we'll get into today. But first, we want to talk about this 2014 Chapman University survey. And it was a nationwide year-long survey, by the way. Um, it was a poll of 1,500 Americans concerning their fears and concerns. And Dr. Christopher Bader, who led this effort, said, quote, We learned through this initial survey that we had to phrase the questions according to fear versus concern to capture the information correctly. So that's how we are presenting it. And indeed, that is how they parse it out. And the reason for that is because fear and worry, although very closely related, Mm -hmm. have a kind of temporal difference, at least in my mind. Uh, It does. Fear feels immediate. And worrying Mm -hmm. feels like a a sort of existential threat, something that might happen in in the future Whereas fear is the immediate future. Yeah, worry has kind of a you know certain amount of uh, inevitability about it. I find like I worry about the things that will come to pass or may come to pass, but fear are sort of the uh, the oddball things that might pop up on the on the on a dice roll of life. You know, the more random things, yeah. right? Yeah. So, top five things that Americans fear the most. This is what came out of the survey. The number one fear. Walking alone at night. Okay, very primal. Okay. Uh, number two, becoming the victim of identity theft. Very modern. Uh, number three, safety on the Internet. Also modern. Number four, being the victim of a mass or random shooting, yeah. which ties to what you said in terms of fear and fear uh, acts of randomness, right? Mm-hmm. And number five, sticking out like a sore thumb in this list, public speaking. <laughs> That's, that seems kind of crazy to me because, like, I, I'm not a fan of public speaking. I kind of view it, it's kind of like vomiting. While I'm doing it, I dislike it, but I don't spend the rest of my life worrying about the next, or fearing the next time I'm going to vomit or have to speak publicly. Like, it, yeah. it's going to happen. What can I do about it? And you feel spent afterward, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you feel like a, you've got a blank slate to build upon. Um, but, yeah, I think that speaks a lot to how much people really dislike getting up and, and talking in front of other people. And I was thinking about that. I was like, what does that mean? That means that they're afraid of failing and they're afraid of being judged. And that all makes sense. But then I thought, why though? Why so, why so common a fear? And then I thought, I wonder if it's because in this day and age, uh, public speaking isn't just speaking to 200 people in a room. It is now one person uh, who is recording the video of it and putting it online so that oh. 2 million other people can see it and judge you. So just recording a, a, a video for YouTube could be considered public speaking? Yes, okay. I think. I okay. think that it could be considered that way. It's just, uh, wh- who is my audience? What are they going to think of me? Am I going to fail or succeed at this? Okay. Uh, but th- that, that's of interest. But what about worry or concern? All right. Well, the uh, Chapman survey for worrying and concern uh, breaks it down as follows. Number one, having identity stolen on the Internet. Number two, corporate surveillance of Internet activity. Number three, running out of money in the future. Four, government surveillance of Internet activity. And number five, becoming ill or sick. So here we see kind of another lopsided uh, uh, array of things here, because becoming ill and sick, that's timeless like and reasonable, that we're all going to worry about what's going to happen when some illness hits us, Uh, perhaps something we have 
little or no ability to uh, to to prevent. Um, and then running out of money in the future, I think we can all relate to that to some point or, uh, or another. You know, to that what to what extent will I not be able to feed myself, house myself, feed myself, feed the people I love, house the people I love in the future? Yeah, and again, this list feels more incremental than immediate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like what will what will it be like for my future self? Will that will my future self have to deal with these various things? Whereas those fears, like the two that caught out to me the most, walking alone at night, uh, certainly, and safety on the internet, like those are two that, uh, that you think about all the time when you're when you're in those environments. I don't know if I would say I outright have fear about safety on the internet but certainly walk, walking down a dark street i mean you, you just can't help but but fear a little ap- feel a little apprehensive well in terms of internet security too and finances i feel like it's a given these days that at some point your information is going to be accessed or compromised mm-hmm. so i can see how that's also in the minds of people um another thing that this survey revealed and remember the survey covered only 1500 people so the mm-hmm. survey isn't exhaustive but it did reveal that a decent amount of people who were surveyed exhibit magical thinking so more specifically the sort of causal relationships between actions and events that are not based on reason and observation okay so, for example, in this study, more than 20% of participants believe that Bigfoot is a real creature. Okay. About half believe that Satan causes most evil in the world. Pin it on Satan, okay. Okay. And uh, 65% think they can influence the world with physical thought, i.e. positive thoughts, a la the book The Secret. <laughs> so, this one... Is a little trickier though, right? Because as you had pointed out earlier when we were talking about this, do they go specifically into like, what do they mean by affect things with positive thoughts? Because there's, um, you know, one column where it's like, yeah, I think I'm going to do great on this test. I'm well prepared. I'm going to mm-hmm. just harness my positivity. And the other one is, uh, I'm just going to stare at the answers and <laughs> by magical thinking, I'm going to get the right one. Yeah. There's, there's certainly a difference between just going into something with a positive mindset and trying to like manifest uh, situations in life just through pure thought. Um, it's interesting. I would, I would certainly, um, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly believe in that to a certain extent. Um, the, you know, just a, the the power of positive thinking on the whole Satan Bigfoot thing. Yeah, I actually think most of the evil caused in the world is due to Bigfoot. So. I actually, that's where I fall on that line. Oh, you think? You yeah. think he's kind of like the shadow Satan character? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think he's uh, yeah, Satan's uh, furry agent on Earth. <laughs> All right, so I think what this data is bearing out, uh, or are bearing out, is that when it comes to cold, hard calculation about the physical world around us, we're not always engaging in critical, objective thought. And this is when perception can falter. Exactly. And it falters along lines that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, skunk apes and devils. Uh, the Chapman survey here also found that the majority, a majority of Americans not only actively fear crimes like child abduction, gang violence, sexual assault, and, uh, and other sort of, uh, you know, often sensationalized, uh, crimes of this, uh, this nature. Uh, they also believe these crimes had increased over the past 20 years. Now, this is particularly interesting when you look at statistical data from police and FBI records that actually show that crime has decreased in America 
over the past two decades. Uh, a, a fact that, uh, that often, <laughs> often, uh, gets criminologists in trouble when they, when they start pointing these, uh, these facts out. When they say, I mean, uh, the, the crime rate has actually gone down no matter what it feels like. And certainly, you know, if you, if you, if your life has been touched by, by violent crime of one type or another, that that fa- the, those uh, those statistics are going to seem less reliable. Uh, but likewise, what if uh, what if your life hasn't been directly touched by this violence, but you simply uh, are privy to it on a daily basis through your consumption of media? Well, and I think what colors this perception too that violence has gone up is that you often hear the that the uh, United States of all the developed countries has one of the highest homicide rates. Mm-hmm. And then if you look at a FBI 2011 statistic of the more than 12,000 homicides, you'll see that 72% of them were caused by firearms. It was homicide by firearms. So it kind of <clears throat> there's there's a there's an actual support of real threat there, but then there's the the overall statistics which would tell you on a day-to-day basis that Crime has actually decreased, so it gets kind of sticky with this, especially when you bring firearms into the equation. And if you guys are interested in that, um, we encourage you to check out the article from The Atlantic. It's called, quote, Gun Violence in America, the 13 Key Questions with 13 Concise Answers. It's by Jonathan Stray, and that'll give you a, a bit more information on the gun factor, which is... Very nuanced, complex, mm-hmm. and more than we can bite off in this particular episode. Yeah, and I'll include a link to that uh, article on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. All right, so w- some of the other contributing factors to perceived fear, according to the Chapman University survey, is that people with lower levels of education will exhibit significantly higher levels of fear regarding a bunch of stuff like personal safety, their future, uh, running out of money, getting sick, Internet usage, again, identity theft, uh, criminal victimization, government the fear of government being oppressive and so on and so forth, immigration, natural disasters, and man-made disasters. And they found that watching television talk shows in particular mm-hmm. uh, with a high frequency was strongly related to fear. And not surprisingly, a study diet of two crime, true crime TV shows affects level of fear in individuals. And they have just more and more data on this if you want to check it out. They actually break down fear factors into gender, political affiliation, race, and so on and so forth. So if you want to see more about that, uh, definitely check out the University of Chapman's Fear Survey of Americans. And the reason we we brought out all of this data for you guys is that we felt like it was a, a good basis to explore the overall concept of mean world syndrome. Yes, mean world syndrome, which stems from cultivation theory. Now, cultivation theory is a social theory developed by George Gerbner, who we mentioned earlier, and Larry Gross from the University of Pennsylvania in the mid-1960s. And it examines the long-term effects of television. So, in, in essence, the idea here is that TV is cultivating our culture. Uh, think of, uh, you know, Shepherd Fairy's uh, Obey uh, graffiti art. Think of John Carpenter's They Live with uh, the, uh, the, 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 the glasses that reveal what television is really uh, informing uh, onto the minds of the public. Um, 
and you have a pretty good idea about what's going on here. The TV is feeding your brain. It's informing our minds both explicitly and implicitly on who and what we are, what sort of world we live in. So it's cultivating the viewer's conceptions of social reality. Now, Gerbner and Gross studied television programming for 22 years, and each year they randomly selected a week and recorded primetime programming as well as children's weekend programming. And they identified the quantity of violence in programs, and they found them to be pretty stable over time. For instance, dramas that feature violence averaged five violent acts per viewing hour. Uh, however, they found some inequalities in victimhood with older people, women and minorities, particularly at risk in these acts of violence. So even though minorities were underrepresented on television when they did appear, they were much more likely to be victims of violence. Now, to analyze the effects of the violence on the minds of the participants, Gerbner and Gross correlated the data from the content analysis of television with survey data from people who were classified based on the amount of time they spent watching TV. So, of course, you've got two groups here. Heavy watchers of TV, four-plus hours, and light watchers, less than two hours. And using a survey, he targeted four attitudes. So the first one was chances of involvement with violence. So what they found is that light viewers predicted their weekly odds of being involved in violence uh, were something like 1 in 100, while heavy viewers said it was more like 1 in 10. Then the second attitude was fear of walking alone at night. Hmm. Uh, women were more afraid than men, but both sexes who were heavy viewers overestimated criminal activity, believing it to be 10 times more than figures actually indicate. The third was perceived activity of police. Heavy viewers believe that about 5% of societies involved with law enforcement. And in comparison, the light viewers thought it looks like 1%, which is about right. And general mistrust of people, that's the fourth attitude. People who were heavy viewers tended to see other people's actions and motives more negatively. And if you drill down a little bit further into Gerbner and uh, Grass's work, you'll find that they they were looking at these very specific behaviors emerging, and they define them as mainstreaming, which is the process by which heavy viewing of television resulted in the similarity of perspective among viewers. And it didn't matter what their their socioeconomic class was or their education. Those who were heavy TV viewers had this perspective they all shared that was a sort of mainstreaming of what they thought was going on. And then something called resonance, uh, which was that if someone had a real-life violent incident that happened to them, well, that was amplifying their experience and, and making it feel like it was more prevalent. And certainly, the, yeah, the resonance, um, resonance makes perfect sense. You have something like this that touches your real life. It's going to completely color your perception of, uh, of reality and even the, you know, even the news that you happen to catch on um, in the evening. Yeah, because you could, in effect, be experiencing that over and over again via these different situations, whether it's a report on the news mm-hmm. or it's um, some sort of CSI uh, scenario. But the thing about this mean world syndrome is that it is not just about violence. It actually extends out further into the world. Its tendrils go a bit uh, more into the social fabric. Indeed, yeah. I mean, it's not television is not and media are not only cultivating our ideas about about what's going on in the world. They're cultivating our ideas about what 
what the human species is, what what our bodies should look like. Um, there's a 2003 uh, paper that was published in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence titled The Effect of Thin Ideal Television Commercials on Body Dissatisfaction and Schema Activation During Early Adolescence. So in this study, they presented two groups of girls with different sets of ads. One set had undernourished women in it, and the other set uh, did not. Uh, they exposed uh, both groups of girls to these ads, and the results, the girls who saw the ads with the emaciated models experienced immediate episodes of insecurity and distress about their weight. What's more, two years later, the same girls still reported greater dissatisfaction with their bodies as compared to the other group of girls who didn't uh, have to witness the uh, emaciated models in the commercials. So the idea here is that continued exposure to unrealistic body types in the in the media affected the girls' perceptions about what a normal, healthy human female body looks like. Again, the media is cultivating our understanding of reality, and in this case, it's uh, cultivating our ideas about what your body should look like. That's fascinating to me. So over a number of years, this database gets built up mm-hmm. in your mind about what is normal, when in fact, if you look at the normal statistics for proportions in women, it's nothing like what is represented in media. Yeah, so it's it's... It's not not only the outer world that is uh, that is skewed, but it's also the inner world. It's it, both looking out and looking inward. Uh, you end up with unrealistic expectations about what's going to happen. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we are going to talk more about the levers that uh, we're pulling here with this mean world syndrome. All right, we're back. Um, you know, in all of this, I kept thinking about um, the television uh, series Sons of Anarchy, which uh, I think I mentioned uh, previously. Uh, just in the space of a month, sort of binge-watched the entire uh, run of the show, like seven series seasons of it. And the whole time, I was just really struck by how violent the show is. And I'm, I'm kind of I'm used to violent shows, but I, I think the... Based on some uh, some online stats I was looking at, the members of the biker gang in this series kill 153 people. And the main character, uh, the, Jax Teller, who you're supposed to be the most sympathetic towards throughout the show, kills 46 people during the course of the show. Like, every episode has some sort of horrible, cold-blooded murder in it. And, uh, and, and so I just, I kept thinking, like, what is this, what, what is this doing to me? You know, what, how is this uh, affecting my awareness? And, and am I more afraid of outlaw motorcycle clubs now than I was in the past? I don't know. You know, that's how I felt with Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that series, but it was really hard to watch. It gave me the sense that the, the world is a rotten, stinking thing. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I like to watch Yo Gabba Gabba. <laughs> it's a lot more positive. And, uh, and it's easier to binge watch the entire, uh, the entire run of the show. Oh, yeah, it's so, got yeah. great music, too. Exactly. Um, in terms of binge watching, uh, this is an interesting area when, especially talking about cultivation theory and mean world syndrome, uh, because, I mean, binge watching has been around for a while, but though not in name. Uh, for a while, it's been possible to get the entire run of a series and just throw yourself into it. For a while, it's been possible to go to a, the video store and just rent a bunch of stuff and watch it. And before that, you could lose yourself in, 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 in a book, in a comic book, uh, what have you. But in recent years, we've seen bin, binge watching, uh, pushed as an acceptable and even, uh, uh, preferable model of media consumption. Mm-hmm. Netflix puts out, uh, you know, all of the, the new season of, uh, House of Cards. 
and you and you can just watch all of it. Just lose yourself in the show. Or uh, Amazon Prime, I think, follows the same model with uh, some of their shows that have come out. Which is really enjoyable, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'm not slamming it because uh, it can be really great to lose yourself in a show and just and not have to wait uh, after each cliffhanger. On the other hand, it's normalizing this sort of binge watching behavior that we might not have all engaged in before. And if you've got ten different series queued up that you're binge watching, that's mm-hmm. a lot of consumption of these uh, various world models. Yeah, and uh, so it's a, like I say, it's a new area. For the most part, so there hasn't been a lot of research done on binge watching and what it's doing to us. Uh, but there was a 2015 study by researchers at the University of Texas at Austin, and they found that the more lonely and depressed you are, the more likely you are to binge watch. Uh, they conducted a survey on 316 18 to 29 year olds on how often they watch TV, how often they had feelings of loneliness, depression, and self-regulation deficiency, and finally, how often they binge-watch television. They found that the more lonely and depressed you are, the more likely you are to binge-watch television in an attempt to distance yourself from what's troubling you, you know, to escape mm-hmm. from your fears, escape from your anxieties, and uh, and simply uh, become one with the uh, the fictional world. And as with a lot of binge behavior, uh, loneliness, depression, and self-regulation deficiency are all key factors here. So again, you dive into the deep end of the TV pool in order to forget what's bothering you. Uh, now, back to the question, though, is it harmful, right? Because as, as we said, it doesn't feel harmful when you're engaging in it. Um, this is where the researchers from the University of Texas at Austin argue that you have all these other factors that are potentially setting in. Physical fatigue, uh, higher propensity for obesity, uh, as well as other health uh, concerns. Uh, factor in potential work neglect, potential um, relationship neglect, and you have a potentially destructive cycle on your hands. Now, imagine that if all you ever watched, you binge-watched, was true crime TV. Okay. Again, you would have this sense that this was a rotten, stinking world. And, and a follow-up of sorts to Gerbner and Gross's true crime TV watching, Glenn Sparks and Susan Helsing at Purdue University surveyed 103 jury-eligible adults about their TV watching habits. They found that the, t- the heavy TV crime viewers estimated two and a half times more real-world deaths due to murder than non-viewers hmm. of this type of television. So that is, that's a statistic that would really tell you that the mindsets of people are being colored, uh, particularly when they are engaging in this type of TV, which and over and over again you see these terrible crime scenes, these crimes that have been perpetuated against people, a lot of women, um, and then the other thing that they found, again, that that, that uh, Gerbner and Gross had found, was that heavy true crime TV watchers misjudged the number of law enforcement officers and attorneys in the total workforce. So lawyers, police, they each make up about less than 1% of the workforce, but those surveyed estimated it at more than 16% and 18% respectively. Mm. Yeah, because you end up just consuming, first of all, some of the worst stories out there about uh, about what happens in the course of human life, and then and then just my, just focusing 
and on all the details of a criminal investigation. And many times they're going to be a high profile case that's covered in these shows too. Yeah. Where it's going to have an unrealistic you know, portrayal of, of how many people show up at a crime scene, what kind of uh, resources are leveled at, at solving it. Yeah. And Sparks and Helsing also found that the true crime TV watchers were also more likely to be fearful about walking alone in a city at night. Of course, yeah. right? You're watching true crime TV. Um, and it reminds me of the episode we did about phobias and we were talking about spiders. Yes. And if I'm recalling this correctly, in one of the experiments, those people who were identified as having serious phobias about spiders were asked to um, draw the spiders and try to figure out the dimensions. Mm-hmm. And... What they found in those people with the really high phobias of spiders is that their dimensions were huge. They were largely outsized compared to the actual realistic dimensions of the spider. Uh, But those who didn't have the phobia had the more or less correct dimensions of the spider. And I think about this. I think this is like the spider in the brain of fear just expanding out in people who are on a, a steady diet of this type of TV. Yeah, yeah, you end up in a situation where you think, uh, every time I step out the door, I'm potentially going to be assaulted or thrown into a van, uh, targeted by a serial murderer, etc. Well, especially if you are enfolded in social media, mm-hmm. right? Because you are then being served up even more and more stories of what's going on in culture um, when it has to do with crime. Yeah, I mean, just think about your... Yeah, you know your own interaction uh, with social media uh, and and crime. I mean, what what happens when you hear uh, gunshots in your neighborhood? If you ever have to to hear that, you're likely to what head over to the neighborhood association Facebook group and uh, and see what everyone else is thinking. Did someone call it in? What does someone th- you know? Where does someone think it occurred? That sort of thing. And then in the case of larger large scale violent uh, acts, you know, acts of terrorism or what have you, you know, you end up heading like over to Twitter, see what's the, you know, the current like breaking news about it. Because as we've seen, uh, we often see uh, accounts of, uh, of traumatic events like this really breaking out on Twitter in real time, right at the the cutting edge of the story, often the unverified cutting edge of the story where there hasn't been enough time to, to validate all the information coming in. So, we have this huge uh, ability to to live right there at the threshold of what's going on, uh, to binge on the chaos, the disturbing details, at times the compassion, but also the, the hate that spirals out across uh, social media uh, following an occurrence like that. Right, and what you're seeing there in those instances, this, this, um, this accretion, really, mm-hmm. of social media and the responses is a kind of emotional contagion. And we've talked about this before, this idea that that anxiety is spreading throughout a network. And uh, if only we had some sort of experiment, say a Facebook experiment, we could point to, <laughs> in which they, they actually changed the algorithm and, and manipulated the feeds for people so that people either saw overwhelmingly positive stories in their news feeds or overwhelmingly negative stories. Ah, yes, we do have that data. Yeah, and this is great because they're they're toying with the way that uh, that media in the form of Facebook can cultivate the users. 
Yeah, we're talking about uh, in June of last year, Facebook did conduct an emotional contagion experiment on almost 700,000 users. And they, they did, in fact, uh, manipulate their their news feeds. And what they saw is that those people producing fewer upbeat and more negative expressions correlated with the negative stories that were in their newsfeed. And the reverse also held true when researchers reduced the number of negative posts visible. So you see this mean world syndrome at play, really, in the responses of the users. And, of course, this drew a lot of ire from people because they felt like they were being manipulated. They felt like Facebook was being shady. Yeah. Uh, and perhaps they were. But we, I will say that you have more than 800 million people logging in every day. Um, that's usable scientific research. And so... You can understand why Facebook and why scientists, social scientists, aren't interested in trying to dip into it, although their methods maybe were less than desirable. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, how like the main headline for that story ended up being Facebook is experimenting on you without your knowledge, tying directly into some of those fears and worries we were talking about at the top of, of, of the uh, the podcast, the, the fear that, that some yeah. corporate and yeah. or government entity is is looking over your shoulder, manipulating uh, something in your life, um, as opposed to the, you know, ultimately the more disturbing idea of just how, to to what degree we are cultivated, to what degree our worldview and our minds and even our, our self reflection are cultivated by these uh, these fonts of media. So my question here is: Do you think at some point we'll become savvy enough that we understand that mean world syndrome is at play, and things will equal out? In other words, uh, perceived threat versus real threat come a little bit closer to each other. I would hope so. I mean, I, that would certainly, I would hope so. It's it's not very encouraging given that this, uh, that cultivation theory has been around so long, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, there's not like a cultivation theory awareness button flashing in the corner of your screen when you've been on the same channel for too long or anything of that nature. Because, I mean, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like preparing a bath, right? The media prepares a bath for you. They uh, they decide how much hot water goes in, how much cold water, and then you dip into it, and it feels all right, and you don't question it. You never stop to think, should I be bathing in a hotter water or a colder bath? Well, especially with this medium with TV, which has been around and kind of just was stable for a long time, mm-hmm. and then other types of media came on board, and then all of a sudden your access to information and to fiction and nonfiction um, exploded. So... It is an interesting time right now. It'll be interesting to see 10 years from now yeah. what sort of studies come out of it. Yeah, because, I mean, right now, especially with, with Facebook, and I think I mentioned this a bit in the uh, some of the race episodes we were talking about, like if you have kind of an, an extreme opinion about anything, uh, be it race-related or not, purely political, what, what have you, uh, you can find a place on Facebook, in social media, you can find a blog, you can find somewhere that will completely cultivate those ideas that you have, they won't question them, won't challenge you, and you can just you can just retreat into that uh, that particular abyss. And uh, that's one of the the strengths of uh, of social media and the internet age, but it's uh, it's undeniably a weakness. 
Well, I think it's appropriate to read a quote from George Gerbner, who back in the day said, quote, Our studies have shown that growing up from infancy with this unprecedented diet of TV violence has three consequences, which in combination I call the mean world syndrome. What this means is that if you are growing up in a home where there is more than, say, three hours of television per day, for all practical purposes, you live in a meaner world and act accordingly then your next-door neighbor who lives in the same world but watches less television. The programming reinforces the worst fears and apprehensions and paranoia of people. There you have it. All right. Well, if uh, hey, you want to check out more episodes of the podcast, you want to check out the landing page for this uh, this particular episode with uh, links out to related content and outside content, uh, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. And if you have thoughts on the mean world syndrome or anything else, please do share those thoughts with us. You can do so by sending us an email at belowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 